Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Intermezzo 11. Long-time listener, architect, and friend Mark writes in to say, David's presentation of Wright's concept of the organic as reaching up into and down from the culture as a whole, in present and as the past, is inescapably embodied in the present, led me to muse on Christopher Alexander and Denise Scott Brown. Both emphasize pattern as something that is discoverable and subject to both analysis and creative intervention. To act morally as a designer means that patterns must be understood. This helps me put my finger on why I dislike Wright's late work, which so often seems driven by an almost demonic urge to a motival consistency that is contrary to nature, contrary to democratic values that celebrate idiosyncrasy, and consequently falls away from the organic. Firstly, thank you very much for checking in and enlivening the conversation. We would love to hear more of your thoughts on how Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown contribute to this moral imperative of pattern recognition. From my own familiarity with these architects, symbol and signification play a large role, either in something as pragmatic as signage landmark iconography on Philadelphia expressways, or the famous ironic reference, like Venturi's Guildhouse Retirement Home, whose facade incorporates a non-functional television antenna. Easily contrasted to that symbolic or metaphorical mode of applied architectural theory are two other architects who also gained prominence in the 60s and 70s, Peter Eisenman and, as you mention, Christopher Alexander. Keep in mind that all three of these branches are, as you also mention, at a very fundamental level concerned with moral imperatives rooted in distinct interpretations of pattern recognition. Diverse as they are, these pattern approaches are very distinct from and consist of a reaction against the highly utilitarian imperatives of late modernist architecture, crystallized by the trauma of two world wars. Historian George Baird writes about what I consider to be the most extreme form of the use of complex pattern as reaction against modernism in how Peter Eisenman found himself compelled by both moral conviction and intellectual consistency to go so far as to deny the legitimacy, not just of radical instrumentality, that is to say, puritanical functionalism, but 
of any form of social program in architecture whatsoever. If this is an accurate assessment, it is the height of Eisenmannian dissonance to build houses shaped like interlocking cubes with intentionally useless upside-down stairways or a Holocaust memorial with no labels and call such actions moral conviction. Alexander, on the other hand, hewing closely to the title of his dissertation, notes on the synthesis of form, searched for a constructive combination of modernist functionalism and intuitively rooted morphological reasoning. Throughout his career in progressive, self-critical steps of revised process, Alexander consistently refined methodological approaches to his architectural application of pattern recognition. If it is possible to brutally summarize that arc, it could be said that in all of nature, from the physical up through to what we call biological, a spectrum of complexity arises as form co-adapts with context when entities and environments define each other. We call this complexity order. We also call it life. The harmonic relations within these networks of ordered life can be varyingly more or less healthy. Good architecture, therefore, increases the vital health of a given set of relations and imperatives. The trick is figuring out how it is deployed and why. Considering the enormity of the task, Alexander in his own works has actually done fairly well, though I can attest that he is his own worst critic. Something that, in an ideal world, should have won him friends but didn't, is how he tended to hold everyone to the high standards to which he held himself. Frank Lloyd Wright included. In Book Two of Alexander's roughly 1,200-page work, the nature of order, he discusses not the billions of patterns describing living shape, but the more limited set of patterns which drive the process of creation of those shapes, what he often refers to as unfolding. Wright did, I believe, use an unfolding process in his earlier works, especially in the Great Prairie Houses and Unity Temple, and including, too, several large buildings, such as the Johnson Wax Office building. His later buildings, like the Guggenheim Museum, came about 
by a more image-driven process. The Guggenheim Museum turns its back on Fifth Avenue, stands in disconnected isolation. A beautiful shape, conceived as an image, not by structure-preserving transformations, violating the fabric of Fifth Avenue that existed there. And while literally volumes could be happily written on the matter, there, in a nutshell, is one perspective on why the early works of Frank Lloyd Wright are so distinct from the latter. I agree with Mark wholeheartedly in that such a distinction exists and that Wright's earlier work tends to be superior. Alexander calls this out as symptomatic of the broader historical breakdown of organically adapted living process. That is his own technical way of describing the general trend of disruption to traditionally time-tested modes of building that the Industrial Revolution played a large part in pushing along. As the pace of change in human life has drastically increased, in large part due to there being so many more humans to deal with, the older strategies of solving problems stopped working as well as they had in the past, and the new solutions behaved like we have come to expect newly released software to be, either stripped down or packed full of gimmicks, unsatisfactory solutions in either case. So, I think it is important to remember that all of these approaches are reacting to problems within a historical time stream. They are solutions for problems shaped by the context of a specific time. What you just touched upon, however, in discussing the moral imperative of pattern recognition points to the important task of stepping beyond history once a fair amount of it has been digested. If the lesson of the tasks and problems common to all times are applied to our own time with a historically informed wisdom, we might be lucky enough to use these tools in improving the choices we make as designers, consumers, and clients. Thank you again to Mark for sending in the comments, and thank you to all of our listeners and members for supporting us and for following our content. Of course, Members are invited to send along questions for the next or any intermezzo. Uh, simply email us info at lapsuslima.com in order to get access to the membership benefits, including the full list of complete intermezzi. Go to lapsuslima.com, click on the orange Patreon icon to sign up for the $5 membership.
Our full intermezzo episodes are typically around 15 minutes long, with the conversations between myself, Monica, and Alonzo going beyond the two or three minute samples in the regular feed. This is in special members-only feed, and any members who haven't gotten that feed tapped into their phones lately, please let us know and we can get you all set up. If you want to help us out by time instead of money, you can always leave a review on iTunes. That helps the podcast get noticed. Share it with a friend. Give us your feedback. We always appreciate everything we hear from listeners. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon with another full episode.